Welcome back to Night School, episode 20, Song of Myself, 1892 version, episode 18, or part 18, and back with me is my esteemed colleague, Mr. West Shantz. Welcome back, Mr. West Shantz. Hey, it's good to be back. Uh, I'm really looking forward to this one. It's, um, it's got a great opening line. I'm looking forward to hearing you read it here. Yeah, well, let me, uh, let me share it right now. And so for those of you on YouTube, now the screen is shared. I, I believe it is. Um, and so there we go. We're starting with 46 this time around. Like you said, here we go. I know I have the best of time and space and was never measured and never will be measured. I tramp a perpetual journey. Come listen to all. My signs are a rainproof coat, good shoes, and a staff cut from the woods. No friend of mine takes his ease in my chair. I have no chair, no church, no philosophy. I lead no man to a dinner table, library, exchange. But each man and each woman, a view I lead upon a knoll, my left hand hooking you round the waist, my right hand pointing to the landscapes of continents and the public road. Not I, not anyone else can travel that road for you. You must travel it for yourself. It is not far, it is within reach. Perhaps you have been on it since you were born and did not know. Perhaps it is everywhere, on water and on land. Shoulder your duds, dear son, and I will mine. And let us hasten forth, wonderful cities and free nations we shall fetch as we go. If you tire, Give me both burdens and rest the chuff of your hand on my hip. And in due time, you shall repay the same service to me. For after we start, we never lie by again. This day before dawn, I ascended a hill and looked at the crowded heaven. And I said to my spirit, when we have become the enfolders of those orbs, and the pleasure and knowledge of everything in them, shall we be filled and satisfied then? My spirit said, no. We but level that lift to pass and continue beyond. You are also asking me questions, and I hear you. I answer that I cannot answer. You must find out for yourself. Sit a while, dear son. Here are biscuits to eat, and here is milk to drink. But as soon as you sleep and renew yourself in sweet clothes, I kiss you goodbye with a goodbye kiss, or I kiss you with a goodbye kiss, and open the gate for your egress hence. Long enough have you dreamed contemptible dreams. Now I wash the gum from your eyes. You must have it yourself to the dazzle of the light and of every moment of your life. Long have you timidly waited, holding a plank by the shore. Now I will you to be a bold swimmer, to jump off in the midst of the sea, rise again, nod to me, shout, and laughingly dash with your hand. Ah, oh, that was great. That's a great one. It's uh, it's him inviting us not into the poem anymore so much as uh, inviting us out again. Uh, I think that's remarkable. Uh, um, it starts out sort of, you know, in his normal vein. I know I have the best of time and space, right? So he's immeasurable and he's uh, of such stuff as will never be measured no matter how good your measurements get, right? There's this thing that can't be measured about him. And that's, that's a great thing to bear in mind. Um, then it's a journey. It's a journey song. It's a, a walking song. I tramp, I, I walk a, 
an endless journey. <clears throat> and he invites everyone along. Uh, he talks a lot about clothes in this one, I noticed. Uh, and he uses a lot of different kinds of imagery for that. Um, Just lost yeah. you for a sec there. Um, yeah, sorry. That you were I just saying got, about clothes. Yeah, I got a I got a call from the the substitute robot, so that might have messed it up. Sorry. Um, I hope it won't call back. <laughs> uh -huh. uh, yeah, the clothes. Right. So the first thing is the rainproof coat, good shoes, um, a staff cut from the woods. Of course, of course, it would come from the woods. He'd remind us of that, right? So on the one hand, keeping out the rain, but on the other hand, using this thing from nature. Um, so there, there's something interesting going on there. He uses the word chair in a couple different senses there, right? He hasn't got anybody sitting uh, in his chair. And on the other hand, he has no chair, which I guess can also mean like in the sense of being a chair of a uh, school or university or of a, a board, you know, of being somebody important. He doesn't have that kind of chair for sure because he has no church, no philosophy. Um, he wants you to go with him to a knoll, right? To a, a slightly higher place and he'll accompany you. And, and he means everyone, right? Man and women. Um, he, he emphasizes that inclusiveness here uh, to show you kind of the, to survey the view ahead. Um, and he can't do it for you, right? He'll, he'll support you, he'll lead you, but you have to travel it for yourself. This is very, very purgatorio right here, I, I feel like. Uh, maybe you had some thoughts about that as well. But uh, then, yeah, so he's got the, the raincoat. Then he talks about the duds, right? Another word for clothes. Um, this feeling of, um, of a burden, right? Um, that the thing that you wear, again, it keeps certain things out. It keeps you warm. It keeps you dry. But it's also a burden. It, in so doing, it cuts you off from certain things and it weighs you down, perhaps. Um, it can be an encumbrance. And I feel like that's what he's kind of saying about the poem, right? The poem has enveloped us and led us a certain amount, but it's also cut us off from other things that we need to be open to, perhaps. Um, there's things beyond this poem that he will not be able to say, right? There's questions that he can't answer. Um, there's, there's places that he can't go with you, perhaps um, not like physical place, like other planets and things. No, not that, but but it's metaphysical places, right? Um, places in thought and imagination. Um, the the food image there um, is a really fitting one, having just come back from Thanksgiving, right? Uh, biscuits and milk. Um, again, you renew yourself after you sleep in sweet clothes. So again, sort of mingling that that food and clothing imagery, um, the goodbye kiss, the, uh, the, the clean, like the cleaning off of your eyes so you can like see what's out there better. Um, and, and being um, a bold swimmer, right? So yet another way of talking about this, instead of wearing the raincoat now, it's like you're jumping into the water. You, it's a, it's a kind of a, a baptism image perhaps, or, you know, uh, the, the ultimate endeavor to um, to swim in the sea, right? That which is beyond and encompassing. Um, 
and and laughing about it right i, I love that ending line um that's that's such a, a beautiful uh sort of uh valedictory sort of line or, or at least he's sort of leading us into that that goodbye section of the poem here yeah i totally agree and i i also i mean I'd like to get into what I think is quite a bit of Christian symbolism in that last, in those last three stanzas at the very least. But um, I, I mean, the idea of drawing something out from your eyes, that's exactly Miltonian as well as having the scales fall out of your eyes, as Paul says, um, having the dazzle of light on every moment of your life, light imagery as like revelation, seeing the light sort of notion. And light, of course, is one of the first things made in creation. In the Old Testament is often a symbol for understanding something uh coming shining the light of your intellect upon something becoming aware of its existence um not not to mention the uh the idea of having new clothes paul says uh clothe yourself in virtue put on your eternal clothes and the idea of biscuits to eat and milk to drink is both a greek or a greco-roman and a christian idea milk to drink like the land of milk and honey uh like sort of in a an ethereal perfect place where you have the most perfect and satisfying or substantial substance given to you which is itself a metaphor for um for information right because biscuits to eat eating ingesting something which is good for you is the physical aspect of the christian mass right they say you eat the host and so the host is the body of god and so it's cannibalism if you're actually eating the body of a creature but at a more abstract level, what do you eat from the creatures around you when you are gathered in mass? You gather information from them, right? And that renews your perspective by enhancing it with information from, uh, from around you. And so that, that, is the, that is what the Christian mass means. Um, and so, you know, there you go. But um, I also wanted to emphasize the point that you brought up about the journey that you have to travel for yourself and no one can do it for you. What he seems to be suggesting here by saying he has no chair, he's not this, he's not that. Uh, A, he's using one of the medieval ways of talking about God by negation. Um, and there are three ways that you could do this in the Middle Ages. You could speak in terms of the superlative. God is the best at this, the most this, the most that. By negation, God is not this, not that, because you know you couldn't name God because that was sort of a faux pas at that time, uh, sacrilege. Um, which is interesting. And the third way that Aquinas came up with is by analogy. But it, what he seems to be suggesting here is he's not simply himself as individual, but the spirit of a poet. It's as if he's trying to be an embodiment of the muse in this case. And I, I noticed that you noticed the sense of motion in this, in this, in this particular part of this poem. And it made me think of it not, not only in terms of music, which is, which is what sound in motion or harmony in motion, or unity in motion, um, uh, but also a journey, which is also motion throughout time, also a river, and that is the notion of spirit, right? A spirit is that which runs through a series of things, but is not reduced to any of those things itself. So like a song is a bunch of notes, but not reducible to the notes. A journey is a bunch of, you know, steps you take during a day, but it's not reducible to each. And I think that's, that's also what Whitman is saying about a life, but also what is valuable within life is touching upon these, these differing aspects of spirit and realizing that it is part of the same unified whole. The unified whole being, I don't know, the sum of human experience, uh, but which we can never fully define because we're never done having it. 
Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's a a way in which the poem reaches out beyond itself, which is very interesting. Uh, um, it it does this sort of explicitly dialogical right uh, thing where it's it's talking you, to you, and and you know he he's been very focused on himself for a lot of the poem using the first person and what that first person represents. Yeah, it does seem to be more than him, although it certainly includes him. You know. Right. The, the the physical and the uh, the bi uh, biographical and all that right but also the American context of course right so but yeah I think it does go beyond being um, sort of uh, delineated by any one individual and it does seem to be the kind of spirit of poetry here that's addressing us um, not unlike the way that Dante has a particular poet Virgil who he really looks up to and who leads him. But at the same time, Virgil is kind of sent by this other thing, right? By um, that that muse, um, Beatrice, and all that right. she represents. Uh, and and of course, by the end of that poem, he uh, he's led by Beatrice herself uh, and someone else too, right? Uh, Bernard, maybe I forget. Uh, Bernard at the very end of Paradiso, so, and also Statius uh, in Candace twenty one twenty two. Okay, in the Purgatorio. Um, but just to add to yeah, your points about the purgatorio, you must travel it for yourself. That's true of every spirit that wants to go to heaven in the purgatorio. It is not far. It is within reach. Uh, purgatorio, you go to purgatorio rather than inferno, not because of the depth of your sin, but because of the fact that you've recognized it. You've turned towards it. And so who is that within reach of? Everybody. And we get that example from several characters, including one, Buonconte, who is saved because he had the name of Mary on his lips as he died, or, or shed a single tear. I get him and Manfred sometimes mixed up, but both of them came, uh, both of them were wretched sinners doomed for hell, who had a moment of recognition and repentance at the end of their, at the very end of their lives, and still made it into purgatory, which means they'll make, eventually make it to heaven. Uh, and so that's always very interesting, but shoulder your duds, and then if you tire, give me both burdens. That's that's the action of going up Pur purgatory. Also hasten forth. People move quickly on purgatory because it's pure suffering being there. And it's also they also have a, uh, a profoundly strong desire to get to the next place. Um, also, but I mean, the biggest line that supports your point there is this day before dawn, I ascended a hill and looked at the crowded heaven. Purgatory is a mountain, Mount Purgatory. And uh, it constantly talks about the dawning. And dawn often represents not only the awakening of humans in a literal way, but also the awakening of their minds to a new fact or perspective, the coming to greater consciousness um, uh, metaphorically. And so this day before dawn, I ascended a hill and achieved, and by the time you're at the top of the hill on a mountain, what do you now have? Well, a much larger perspective. Well, how do you build it? Through the efforts you've taken in order to get there. And what's interesting is that the, the sort of uh, cosine sine sort of Sisyphean process of nature, the sort of Nietzschean uh, eternal return here is that, well, you, you climb that mountain to just get there and then look at your perspective and be done. No, we but level that lift to pass and continue beyond. Like you go to the next mountain. And that seems to be the process, not only of you living a good life, but also of say one person or one person who embodies the same uh, profession or, or role as you, uh, you taking what they've done and then improving on that and knowing that the next person on the chain after you is going to do the same thing with you. Sort of like what Dante, the Dante locates himself in the epic 
tradition when he meets the four great poets in limbo, uh, Horace, uh, Ovid, uh, I'm, let me see, uh, that'd be embarrassing to forget, Homer, and uh, who is the other one? It's uh, the writer of, the writer of Pharsalia, and so I'm forgetting his name for the moment, but it, it was the work on the, he was a Roman poet who wrote about is it, is it Lucan. Lucan? Lucan, there we go. Yeah. It was Lucan. Good, 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 good. So talk my way Close in. One. In any case, he seems, or that, that process of locating oneself within a tradition that one knows has a past and a future and that you're sort of a node within it sort of shows that you believe in the spirit, understand the spirit of an endeavor and understand uh, uh, that sort of you're an ocean within the wave and you're hoping that the next wave will be larger and that being part of that process is sort of the best thing you can possibly do as a human. Yeah, yeah. In that respect, I totally agree about the information thing. I, I just, I really like that he points out at the beginning though that this isn't the kind of information that you can, you can measure, right? Yeah. It's not, it's not, and, and as we've been saying, you know, it's not limited to this particular poem. It's, it's this thing that speaks through this poem as it does through all, you know, true poems and true attempts of, of reading and writing them. Right. So it's like that, that sort of, um, that sort of information, right. Not something that you can pin down and, and have memorized and then be, be good. You know, it's, uh, it's that ongoing sort of process. Uh, right. It actually shapes you in information, like it forms you to some extent. Oh, I like that. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Well, I want to go go into the next one here, if you have time. Yes, please. Okay, okay, let's do one more here. Uh, so 47, I am the teacher of athletes. He that by me spreads a wider breast than my own proves the width of my own. He most honors my style who learns under it to destroy the teacher. The boy I love, the same becomes a man, not through derived power, but in his own right. Wicked rather than virtuous, out of conformity or fear, fond of his sweetheart, relishing well his stake, unrequited love or a slight cutting him, worse than sharp steel cuts. Ah, uh, a slight cutting him. Got it. Okay, sorry. First rate to ride, to fight, to hit the bullseye, to sail a skiff, to sing a song or play on the banjo, preferring scars and the beard and faces pitted with smallpox over all latherers and those well tanned to those that keep out of the sun. I teach straying from me, yet who can stray from me? I follow you whoever you are from the present hour. My words itch at your ears till you understand them. I do not say these things for a dollar or to fill up the time while I wait for a boat. It is you talking just as myself. I act as the tongue of you, tied in your mouth. In mine, it begins to be loosened. I swear I will never again mention love or death inside a house. And I swear I will never translate myself at all, only to him or her who privately stays with me in the open air. If you would understand me, go to the heights or water shore. The nearest net is an explanation and a drop or motion of waves, a key. The maul, the oar, the handsaw, second my words. No shuttered room or school can commune with me, but roughs and little children better than they. The young mechanic is closest to me. He knows me well. 
The woodman that takes his axe and jug with him shall take me with him all day. The farm boy plowing in the field feels good at the sound of my voice. In vessels that sail, my words sail. I go with fishermen and seamen and love them. The soldier camped or upon the march is mine. On the night ere the pending battle, many seek me, and I do not fail them. On that solemn night, it may be their last. Those that know me seek me. My face rubs to the hunter's face when he lies down alone in his blanket. The driver, thinking of me, does not mind the jolt of his wagon. The young mother and old mother comprehend me. The girl and the wife rest the needle a moment and forget where they are. They and all would resume what I have told them. Well, sweet vindication. I mean, this entire part seems to justify our interpretation of the last part, 46. I mean, A, we see the sort of crest and trough, wave-like nature of spirit manifest here, and that again we get uh, another list, right? Another list indicating that all these sort of normal parts of existence for all these interesting and very different sorts of people are where you find this perforating spirit, right? That all of these experiences and that they are experiences by a subject uh, committing an action that can be understood by other isomorphic beings, us, like we know what a woodman is and he takes his ax and jug and we know what a farm boy plowing is, but what's amazing is only we know what this is. No other creature can fathom this sort of thing and not only can we fathom this, but even if you've never worked a plow or held an ax or uh, worked on an engine of anything, um, you, you can understand this and that uh, he seems to again be uh, explaining that with this sort of existential idea that no shuttered room or school can commune with me, right? That uh, some dead place of abstract learning is not the best teacher. It is not as good a teacher as experience, which seems to be the point that you've been sort of really, really liking uh, about uh, what you are commenting on now, the golden compass, right? You like that Lyra's education has been sort of patchwork and, and, and um, uh, free, that she's been free to explore for herself rather than having just a directed um, uh, a course of study, which I wonder, I would hypothesize that perhaps that's why you like that series more than Harry Potter, because Harry Potter, though, there's an element of that. There's much less of that than what Lyra discovers for herself. But, you know, I'll let you answer for yourself there. Um, the beginning, I, I like the, I am the teacher of athletes. What that seems to be saying is proving exactly what we said about the progress of the spirit throughout time through specific embodiments of it, right? One poet's good, the next one's better, the next one's better, the next one's better, and there's a slow progress upwards. Well, what does an athlete do? They contend, right? They, uh, the athlon in Greek is a suffering, something, a burden that you take on in order to improve yourself, to, to move uh, forward or upward. And so who, are, who is the teacher of athletes? Well, the spirit is. And what is the spirit? The spirit of poetry here. And so uh, he that by me spreads a wider breast than my own proves the width of my own. And so he is now saying that he, he located himself earlier in the poet poem as a poet writer, as a valuable source of information, as potentially an epic poet. Now he is locating himself within the present time with a view to the future, sort of Christmas carol style. Now we're getting onto that Chris, that ghost of Christmas spirit. And he most honors my style who learns under it to destroy the teacher. He's saying that my purpose as a poet will have been accomplished if I convey to you my wisdom and you do your own thing in your own particular way in the same way that I'm doing with no with models that came before me which I I honor by creating my own model because 
the, the most important part of becoming a poet is to become a poet, someone capable of making, uh, the Greek word poiang from which it comes means to make, uh, someone who's able of ca capable of making their own style or of presenting information in their own way, I think, which is far more important than simply developing your own style. That's, I think, a subcomponent of saying what you have to say. You will say it in your own way because you have your own particularly limited perspective. But <clears throat> again, yes, he seems to be saying he is now the current poet. He hopes that there is somebody better than he is in the future and that that will actually most honor him in the same way that Dante honors, honors Virgil by saying that he has gone beyond him. Because Virgil took him as far as he could, and then poof, once Dante becomes conscious enough to have his own style, he becomes self-conscious, and then, and then, you know, ultimately uh, simply conscious, he, uh, he, he no longer, his master is his own mind, which is the ultimate master that one can have, the logos, that which is most divine. And, um, and so that, then he can chase his own ideal, Beatrice. And that is ultimately what he, any master of a craft wants for his or her student to become capable of, of pursuing their goal in their, in their own way. Um, and that, that links back, I think, also to him saying, he cannot walk the path for you, also to a Buddhist maxim that, you know, you got to cross the river yourself, you know, and uh, I just, I see it all coming together here. I love it, yeah. I, I really like that um, interpretation of the, uh, preference for the Golden Compass um, and Philip Pullman over uh, Harry Potter by J.K. Rowling. I think that's one of a lot of things that I really like about that book. Um, but I, I have to say, I think the primary thing, or maybe the the main thing is, is just that I read it first, you know, and I read it at the time when I was the right age to read it, I guess. Um, and it wasn't assigned. It that's the main thing, right? It's like whatever book it is or whatever thing it is that, that really captures your interest, it, I think it does sort of have to transcend a schoolroom or perhaps a church or, or something like one of those institutions. Um, even, you know, um, even the best intentioned institution or organization has a kind of fettering uh, about it and, you know, it becomes an obligation um, as much as you might want it to be just for your own will, um, which I, I think that that willpower and that free will element here is super important. Um, that's, that's a major theme in The Golden Compass is that Lyra, you know, go about her journey of her own will and, and not because she knows it's her destiny or, or something like that, uh, which again is very distinct from uh, Harry Potter, The Boy Who Lived. But, you know, there's lots of things that I love about both those books, but that's, that's for another time, I guess. Um, just to respond to the other uh, stuff that you were coming out with there, um, I, I think that if we um, do want to say that all of the uh, sort of perennial wisdoms of all the different um, poets and uh, religious backgrounds and things, um, and even like physical sorts of knowledge like science and even like athletics right are sort of coming together here i think that that is whitman's intention and his aspiration and um although he doesn't have the particulars necessarily right that's not really the point right it's that he's got this kind of all-pervading spirit um and i really like that idea and i really 
think that it's challenging too because inevitably such a thing is going to get its own name, right? It's going to become Whitman-esque and that's his style, right? And so what I love most here is that he says, yeah, you have to, you have to encompass and take in and honor the style of the poet who comes before you, but you have to transcend it. You have to go beyond it and, and, and utterly destroy <laughs> your teacher, right? In so doing, it's a, uh, it's another communion image, right? Um, uh, the, the, the consumption, the eating of the bread and the wine, right? The body and the blood, um, you, you destroy that thing and you take it into yourself and, uh, and it's, it becomes part of you, right? So, so much so that you, you can call it your own. Um, right, that, that seems to be the difference between the sort of spiritual aspect of that which is divine within say the Christian interpretation and the institutional aspect, which is dead, like you were saying. I think that's interesting that you say that an institution has a tendency towards uh, uh, sort of speaking the dead word and just inculcating sort of ritual and fact from the past. And that's sort of like the most boring course you probably ever had, right? A history class where like Professor Ben's, where just facts are droned on to you that you have to know, but very little of sort of like the active element of thinking and figuring things out is happening. And so I, I really see you nailing down, and I'll stop talking in one second, the uh, sort of the sort of dual nature of uh, say a language or a role that there seems to be something static, which is dead, which is like bone, just like sticks it out and also something dynamic, which is creative, which uh, renews, which is unique. No, yeah, that's, that's exactly what I'm, um, I'm most fascinated by here is, is that attempt to sort of have it both ways, right? Um, and that is what language does. Yeah, it, it, takes, it takes what you already know, and otherwise it couldn't really communicate with you. But it stretches it and, it and expands it and gives you some new tools and new materials with which to build your own words, um, your own thoughts and uh, style, right? And um, clearly this, this poem bids us uh, sort of, you know, beat it, you know, it's, it's a competitive thing. Yeah, the, the athlete, right? it's like, you, you have to do better than this. You have to um, take what you've learned from this and, and exceed it in all sorts of ways. And not just in maybe poetic ways, of course, right? Because all of these are very concrete things. Um, be a better mechanic, be a better woodman, farm boy, be a better uh, mother or old mother. Um, all of these are things in which you can take what you learn from this poem and, um, and go beyond, right? Become better, become more aware and more alive. And, and all of that is like very, very stirring. Um, it does seem to be sort of at the heart of many particular religions and traditions and things. And it does seem to always need, and I think this is what's sort of cool about the American experiment here, right? Of the democratic um, approach is that you always have that opportunity to renew it. Um, you, you don't shut down uh, things that even seem sort of wicked or like uh, subversive because you have to destroy the tradition in order for the tradition to be what it is. Right, because what our tradition is, is the tradition of free speech, of logos, of constant recreation of that which, of that which we know. And so the worst thing you can do for us is limit the expression of spirit through language. Not, not to hold a particularly opprobrious position, so long as it's legal and doesn't cause harm to others, right? And so the worst thing you can do is hinder even perspectives you dislike, 
rather than let them manifest themselves so you can have a richer and fuller perspective of what actually exists. Because once you limit the imbibing of other perspectives simply because you find them distasteful, well, that's like limiting what you eat in food and not eating vegetables because they don't taste as good as like sweets. And so, you know, for which has, I would say, a similar, a similar effect on your sort of mental fitness as, as physically doing that would have on your physical fitness. Yeah, I, I like that he, uh, yeah, I definitely agree with that. And uh, I'm not advocating for violence. I, I mean this in the uh, properly poetic metaphorical <laughs> sense, right? Destroy, yeah, no, no, please. Uh, but the, the roughs. And little children, I, I found it really interesting that he starts with those two, and I do sort of feel like those are the right place to start if you're, um, you know, trying to think about what would be better than a shuttered room or school. Well, it'd be the kind of place out in the open air that the roughs, right, the people who aren't like formally educated, um, and yet they know a lot uh, and they learn a lot all the time, and they have to, right? Those those people are sort of out there, and little children, right, who play all the time and just see everything as a kind of uh, game, right? Which is at the same time, like super all important to them, right? Th those are the kind of people that you wanna be uh, teaching and um, understanding and learning from if you're, uh, if you're gonna do what this poem seems to be Im implying that we ought to do. Um, I really like the idea that there are schools, you know, I don't think that they're bad, but, and churches and all that. Um, but but there is something outside of them which they are meant to serve, which is kind of what's represented there. The, these other people and these um, people who've maybe missed opportunities, those people who who are all opportunity, who are all potential, um, they also are are ultimately um, extremely important to uh, to the whole the well, whole right, of which yeah. this is a part. Yeah. And that seems very interesting, too, because these people are all people who have their feet on the ground, as in they're all working class people, right? Mechanic, woodman, farm boy, uh, fisherman, seaman, uh, and rough. These are, these are all non-learned people who know very particular skills. And so what he seems to be suggesting is that don't just read me. Go out and learn from all the people around you who are working jobs because they know specific facts. It's also sort of an Athenian platonic Point, right Socratic point and that who do you want to be listening to the sophists who know how to talk and convey quote-unquote wisdom to you and know how to argue or would you like to learn from the direct experience and real learning of someone who's a mechanic who has to make things work a woodman who has to you know not die by tra tree hitting him which I think that is one of the leading uh, uh, on-the-job injuries in America is uh, death death for woodsmen people who cut down axes or cut down trees with axes. Um, farm boy who has to plow and understand, you know, how uh, planting uh, crops that have to grow work and, you know, fishermen and seamen who either starve or die if they don't do things right. So these are people who, who know what the cost or know what the price or the value of wisdom is, right? Real wisdom, wisdom that enables them to do their jobs, practical wisdom. So I feel like I can see some of the pragmatic edge of America sort of, which will eventually at, well, actually, as it, at exactly this time, the, 18, uh, the late 19th century, um, uh, will manifest in the philosophy of America, right? And so it's interesting. I, I know Peterson often says that uh, the artists get there and then the philosophers explain it. But it's interesting here because we explicitly have this pragmatic spirit coming through the poet that will then be sort of 
expounded upon by Charles Sanders Peirce and uh, William James in the philosophical tradition at Harvard around the same time. Right, right, yeah. I, I would be really interested to see if there are places where James and Peirce and, and those guys, uh, Dewey, you know, is in that same kind of conversation, like where they are reading and uh, discussing with, I mean, I'm sure there's lots of scholarship about that, um, which would be interesting, but yeah, it's, it is a matter of sort of putting it in the terms in which um, all sorts of people can better access and understand it. And, you know, the way that you say um, this, this idea, this great sort of all encompassing um, idea might be really different for the person who's working out in the woods or the farms um, and versus, or the soldier, right. As opposed to the, uh, the scientist, the philosopher, um, the person in the city, you know, who's, who's tasked with uh, training, um, uh, I don't know, business leaders and, and things like that. So, but there's sort of like room for both of them. Yeah, I, I think that that, that is really um, wise <laughs> uh, of, of, of Whitman um, to, to sort of make his pitch to all those different levels uh, and more to, the, more to the roughs and little children than, than to the learned. Uh, which yeah. is something worth aspiring to. Yeah, an all-encompassing value of all, and that if one is going to be the articulator of that which is, one needs to see the value of all that is. And so one needs to investigate all there is. It's a, I, I, it's a point that's also made in The Prince. It's not a very Machiavellian point, but one point that he makes that I think is fairly mundane is that if you are the prince of a territory, you should know every inch of that territory. And that will actually make you love the territory most because you'll understand the value of every inch of territory. And I take that also to be an abstract point, right? If you're going to be a poet and you're going to represent your people in a song and yourself in a song, then you're going to have to represent, you know, a vast amount of experience, both yours and others. But whatever spirit experience you perceive from others better be their experience. And uh, you're only going to be able to convey that appropriately if you understand the, the value of it, right? You're only going to give it uh, appropriate diligence, uh, if you really understand what it is it means, or, or you'll leave it out, or some important detail out from it that takes away the living edge from your words. Right on. All right, well, do you feel like that's an okay place to stop for tonight? Yeah, I think, uh, I think we did good work today. Um, it's good to be back on the horse here. We took a few days off for a vacation, and that was nice. And then all of a sudden, I just found that uh, there was something missing from life, and so I had to had to come back to this. Had to come back to this. I'm glad that we're back on the horse. Yeah, me too. All right. Thanks again. All right. See you soon. Until next time.